to A Voice for the Voiceless, a podcast about endangered species. I'm your host, Jenny Sisler, and as always, I am coming to you from, uh, well, today it's overcast and threatening rain all day, Sunderland, Massachusetts. Uh, The rain all day would not be a bad thing, given the severe drought we've been in since about March or April. I honestly can't remember the last time it rained, and it's just been brutal. Um... So hopefully it does a decent amount of rain today. Um, It is Monday, September 5th, 2022, and that is Labor Day here in the United States. So I thought I would record this morning so I can get the podcast up as soon as possible. I kind of whiffed last week a little bit. I just, I was having a hard time finding the information that I wanted to share. And I don't know, last week just kind of fell apart. So that's why there was no podcast last week. So this week I thought we would discuss a very intriguing creature that is only found in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. But first, I want to correct a mistake I made in my last podcast. Um, I believe when I was talking about atlas moths that I said they were from South America. Um, Actually, they're from Southeast Asia, so a bit of a difference. Um, But still the same point that they would not be found here naturally. I still haven't seen anything, I've been looking, but I still haven't seen anything about any further atlas moth sightings in Washington state, which is a good thing. Um, I did find in an article, you know, the prevailing thought is that it was an escapee from a conservancy, like I said in my last podcast, but there was also a guy who, in Washington state, who a couple years back was uh, charged with trafficking in atlas moth cocoons. Um, It is illegal to own atlas moth cocoons, it is illegal to sell them, and it is illegal to own atlas moths because they are a very damaging species. And even in their endemic regions in Southeast Asia, they are considered pests because they can just defoliate, they can just defoliate entire forests like you wouldn't believe. And that is because, like I mentioned last time, when they go through their uh, metamorphosis, when they emerge from the cocoons, they don't have mouth parts, so they only live a week. So they primarily do, they, well, not primarily, they do all their eating that they're ever going to do in their life when they're caterpillars, when they're the hornworm caterpillars. So these caterpillars have voracious appetites. So you know they're not they're not necessarily good to have around a bunch of uh, forest or forest land or agricultural land and they're considered pests so that's why it's illegal to own them or have them here unless you have special permits and you're running a conservatory like magic wings so that was just a little correction i wanted to make before i get into the um, heart of today's discussion Now, um, the only way that you can really describe the creature I'm going to discuss today is that it is unique. Uh, Not quite as unique as the echidna, but unique. And that creature is the okapi, which is native only to the Uturi rainforest in the Democratic Republic of Congo. So um, an okapi is kind of hard to describe how it looks. It kind of looks like a deer only it's smaller and it has stripes across its rear end and its legs like a zebra but it's actually genetically related to a giraffe and in fact they are called forest giraffes even though they're very small 
um, they are the giraffe's only genetic relative. Um, and it's believed that maybe the okapi evolved to not have the long neck and the build of a giraffe because as vegetation grew lower and lower in the rainforest, it was easier to reach and they didn't have to evolve the long necks like giraffes did. But if you looked at it, you would think it was somehow related to a deer, not a giraffe. But they, um, they're very interesting. They have very thick fur. Uh, the stripes on them help them camouflage themselves in the depths of the rainforest, kind of similar to the bongo um, in that respect. They, um, their stripes, you look at them and they're like this beautiful chestnut red with white stripes. You wouldn't think the white would be good camouflage, but when they're in the middle of the rainforest, those stripes actually act as camouflage. Um, they have scent glands on the bottoms of their hooves so that as they walk, they're marking their territory, which is important because an okapi is a very territorial animal. Um, and it's interesting to me because this is where they don't bear any resemblance to deer because both the males and the females have horns. Of course, the antlers for deer are only amongst the males. Now, the female, the female horns are not prominent at all, but they do have them. So you can easily tell a male from a female a copy just based on the size of the horns, but the females do have them. And except for the very tips of their horns, they're covered in skin, which is not the case for an elk or a deer or any other animal like that. Um, and the interesting thing, and I didn't know this until I started doing the research, like a giraffe, an okapi has four stomachs also like a cow, but since we're talking about how they're related to giraffes, it has four stomachs. And that's because the, a lot of the vegetation they eat is very fibrous and tough to digest, just like a lot of leafy greens are for us humans. So the four stomachs help them grind up and digest the fibrous plants that they eat. And like giraffes, they have a dark tongue that is very, very long that allows them to sweep vegetation off tree branches. So uh, they're very giraffe-like in that matter. Um, it's believed that the average okapi can consume 40 to 60 pounds of food a day, um, which also includes clay for minerals. And sometimes they, and this is disgusting, but I guess it's nature doing what nature's got to do to take care of itself. Sometimes they'll even eat bad guano for the nutrients and the salts that are in it. Kind of disgusting, but nature always has a purpose for what it does. So um, for the most part, a copy lives so solitary lives, although sometimes they are seen together in little herds, you know, socializing in little herds. But for the most part, they are pretty solitary creatures. Um, and the females give birth to one calf at a time. Um, and it's very, I found this very interesting and it makes perfect sense, but it just kind of highlights how evolution and nature really takes care of its own. An okapi calf, uh, it's only like a half hour after it's born that it can walk, but it will not defecate for a month after it's born. And that's because the droppings would attract predators. The scent of the droppings would attract predators. So that's a defense mechanism that has evolved over the course of this copy's genetic lifetime that protects it from predators when it's a newborn. And this I found interesting. 
um, well, I found the whole thing interesting, you know that, but the females will, con will communicate with their babies using what's called infrasound, and it's basically sounds that are too high-pitched for humans to hear. So they've got the ability to have built-in dog whistles, if you will, that help them communicate with their babies, um, and yet humans can't hear it. So, you know, as fascinating as these creatures are, they are critically endangered. Um, it's believed, and although it's very hard to do full counts of Okapi populations, because they live right smack in the middle of the Aturi rainforest, and it's very difficult to get scientists up in there to do counts and studies. And of course, they're very skittish of humans anyway, so they, and they hide very well amongst the foliage, so it's hard to know for certain. But it's believed that in the past 20 years, the population has decreased by about half. And although deforestation has played a part in it, the larger part of the um, near extinction of these creatures is due to poaching, sadly. Um, and because of the government unrest off and on over the decades in the Congo, it's made it difficult to stop poachers. And actually, there is a very, very sad story I wanted to share with you. It did have a good outcome, but um, the Okapi Conservation Project is the primary NGO that's in the Congo boots on the ground trying to help restore the Okapi species. And they actually do um, a captive breeding program at their facilities. And they had been in the Congo for probably, I think they, they founded their, if I remember correctly, I'd have to go back and look to be sure, but they founded their organization and built their facilities in the Congo in 1987. And it was actually so long ago that it was still called Zaire. Um, it was back before the Congo became the Congo. Um, so they always had to be wary and careful of political violence because it was just something that was everywhere all around them. But they didn't face a violent act until June 24th, 2012, when an armed militia group seized the village that they, that they work out of and took over the headquarters, um, killed six people, and wiped out all the Okapi that were there in the captive breeding program. Um, now, it was pretty much known right from the beginning that that was not a political, politically motivated attack because the Okapi is pretty much the same thing to the Congolese that the Eagle is to an American or, you know, any country that has a, an animal symbol that represents it. You know, the Okapi represents the Congolese people. It's like their national animal. And even though there was a lot of political violence, you know, you wouldn't, if you were committing acts of political violence to gain power, you wouldn't go slaughter your nation's symbol and expect to get, to get into office. So they knew right away it wasn't politically motivated, which left poachers. And um, they had been advocating for a lot of anti-poaching legislation because poaching, of course, is what has taken the lives of most a copy over the years. So they knew that it was a it was a poacher who did it. And um, in fact, one of the people who was murdered, uh, she was the wife of a ranger who had arrested, who had previously arrested the poachers who were involved in the ambush. 
So it was revenge for being anti-poaching. And they eventually tracked it to this guy named Paul Sadala, and he went by the nickname Morgan. And he was known to be one of the most notorious poachers probably in modern Congolese history. Um, he had killed scores of elephants before this attack on the Akapi Reserve. And um, he was just pissed off about anti-poaching legislation. And he was just an evil piece of crap that felt like the animals were just there for him to take and how dare anyone tell him he couldn't. Um, and aside from poaching the Okapi and the elephants, he also owned an illegal gold mine operation that fell within the bounds of the preserve in the Achuri rainforest. So he was just pissed off that these people were trying to stop him from being an asshole. And pardon me, I probably should not swear on this podcast, but occasionally if I get wound up enough, um, you know, if I get wound up enough, I'll probably uh, drop a swear or two every now and then. And this just winds me up. But it actually has a good ending. If you can, if you consider what happens to him a good ending, I probably shouldn't. But so anyway, he he had committed this ambush. And by the 25th, he and his forces had retreated back into the Aturi rainforest. And um, then the army units that responded to the violence, they started looting the facilities because these poachers, they not only killed the people who were working there in the, in the Okapi, but they burned the uh, building and they looted and they, you know, basically just tried their best to destroy the entire facility. And so what they didn't take, the army took and looted when they responded. So um, basically his forces retreated into the rainforest and they actually fought skirmishes until 2014. And finally, the government officials felt that he, um, he was ready to surrender. So they offered him, you know, they said, surrender to us. And he said, I will if you make me a, ge a general in the Congolese army. So they were like, okay, we'll consider it. So they lured him into surrendering. But when he got to the meeting where it was supposed to finalize his terms, they, he basically found out it was BS and they were there to arrest him and try him for poaching crimes. And so he tried to leave and they gave him, the uh, commanding general of the Congolese army gave an order to shoot him once in each leg. And he bled to death and died right, bled to death and died right there. And there is some controversy over his death because they don't think that anyone actually tried to help him. They just think it was an ambush by the army to get rid of him. And I can't say I feel sorry for him, but I can see why, you know, you want in cases of animal abuse and neglect and poaching and things like that, you want the people to be brought to justice so that it serves as a future deterrent for other poachers if they know they're going to end up serving life in prison or whatever for their activities. But I don't really feel sorry for the bastard that he got shot to death by the uh, Congolese army, especially because when the, um, in the aftermath of the ambush, the uh, folks who ran the Okapi Preserve, they, they didn't want to let him and what he did stop them from trying to save the Okapi, but they didn't want to rebuild until they were certain he had been arrested or something, you know, that, that he wasn't going to just come back and do it again. So um, UNESCO and the Flora and Fauna International Group uh, launched an emergency fundraising campaign, and they were trying to raise $120,000 
to help these people rebuild their facilities and they eventually did and you know I think that once they realized this guy couldn't hurt them anymore it was all systems go and they rebuilt and they're still there today you know 10 years later they've rebuilt and they're still doing work on uh, not only captive breeding programs to help rehabilitate uh, the Okapi population but uh, education programs to teach the kids in the surrounding villages about the Okapi and why it's important to protect them and you know helping educate the adults too about uh, alternatives to having to rely on things like bushmeat which is why poaching is so big in um, which is why poaching is so big in Africa because a lot of people are extraordinarily poor and sadly, exotic animals, meat from exotic animals is a way for people to make money. And if it comes down to killing an okapi to put food on your table or watching your family starve, a lot of people don't really have the resources to find the way out of that kind of poverty to uh, stop poaching. And I'm not trying to make an excuse at all for poachers. You know, if killing an animal is illegal, it's illegal and you shouldn't get away with it, regardless of your circumstance. But a lot of what goes on in trying to preserve and conserve animals that have been poached is teaching people alternatives to poaching so that they can, you know, so that they can thrive without having to harm animals that are endangered. Um, I know that happens a lot with elephants as well. Um, you know, human-wildlife conflict uh, can be a thing where, you know, you feel like you have to kill the elephant or it's going to come in and trample all your crops and then what do you do for the next year? Your family starves to death. So groups like the Okapi, uh, the Okapi Conservation Group are very important and these jerks knew that when they went in and destroyed the place and killed everyone. And I suppose in a way, it kind of feels like justice was served. But the sad thing is, for every poacher that gets killed while they're poaching, or every poacher that goes to jail, there's always going to be another one to step up and take their place. It kind of reminds me of the African version of the drug cartels, or the, the African version of the Middle East terrorist cells who you kill the leader, and then there's going to be someone else that comes along to take up the mantle. So thankfully, um, the, the group has been safe and secure and they've been able to rebuild and go on about the work of protecting the Akapi. Um, and I hope it'll be that way for them for many years to come. Um, you know, Stephanie, Stephanie's group has, it took quite a while, but they have been able to start rewilding the bongos that they have worked so hard to raise. And I hope that someday the Okapi will see the, um, see the same level of success in the rewilding that the bongos are. Um, of course, it takes time and it takes dedication and it takes being willing to put yourself in unsafe situations. Um, I have to admit, I worry about Stephanie sometimes with the, with the uh, situation she finds herself in sometimes, you know, with the tribal factions that don't necessarily get along or certain government people who don't necessarily like her message and that would be true anywhere in Africa anywhere in regards to any animals whether it's rhinos, okapi, bongos, elephants, lions you know whatever um, 
but I'm just grateful that they were able to rebuild and continue their work. Sometimes, you know, things rise from the ashes and become even better and stronger than they were before. And I think that has really happened. Um, and hopefully in the future we will continue to hear good things about rewilding programs for the Okapi. So I think I'm going to stop this right here. And I just want to remind you that you too can be a voice for the voiceless. Thank you for listening. Bye.